Is your body individually a temple of the Holy Spirit? It absolutely is. If you are a Christian, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. Is that true? It absolutely is, but it cannot stop there. Because as we're told, all of us collectively, like living stones, are being built into a house, a structure, a new temple. It's a lot stronger, right? What good is an individual stone? It can do certain things. But when you take those and you build them into a house, it's a massive difference, can we agree? The intention, right, is that we are individual stones being built into this temple. And that because of that, because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you and I have it, that we're supposed to come together. And the idea is that that is it. I mean, that's it. That's the whole of who we are. Crazy as it sounds, he's now dependent upon us. He's chosen, right, to rely upon us. He's put his spirit in us and he's entrusted us then to steward that spirit well and also to not just somehow keep it to ourselves, but to also use it to share the gospel, the good news and the kingdom now with the people around us. I was at the, uh, the gym this week. I mean, obviously, right? Um, but I was at the gym this week on, uh, on Monday, and uh, I've been going at the same time for a very long time to the same gym. And I think I've mentioned this before, but it's essentially uh, the same group of uh, about 10 to 12 people that are there at this time pretty much every morning. It has been uh, for years. There's about eight of us guys and a couple of gals that are there and kind of just we're all friends and we kind of know the lay of the land. And so if somebody sort of infiltrates that group, uh, it's noticeable. And so this week on Monday, I showed up and uh, there was a new gal there, uh, never seen before. And uh, so I was like, okay, we got a, got a newbie, you know, she'll last a couple weeks, something like that, usually how it goes. But uh, I noticed then as, I, as she kind of walked past me, I'm like, oh my gosh, girl looks so familiar. You ever had that before? And like, you can't, just can't quite place the person. Uh, and that's not okay with me because I pride myself on names, faces, having, you know, this memory. And so I'm like, all right, who is that? So I start running through my mind and I'm kind of like trying not to be too creepy, you know, like looking at her. Uh, but I'm, at the same time, I'm trying to look at her. So it's like this kind of dance I'm doing. And so finally, like it hits me and I think I know who it is. So I go over because I don't know. I said, hey, I don't mean to interrupt your workout. I said, but you look super familiar to me. And I'm like, is your name? And I, and I said her name and she was like, yeah. And she's like, and I said, I think that my uncle was married to your aunt 27 years ago for like three months. And, uh, and I think like, the, and I said, is your sister named this? And she was like, what? And, and, I, and I said, well, she's like, what's your name? And I said it, and she didn't really recognize it right off the bat. And, and then I said, well, I think you were in school with my sister. And then I said my sister's name. And she was like, oh my gosh. And, and I said, yeah, I just, I said, I was looking at you and I just couldn't quite figure out who you were and she's like well that was like 30 years ago you know like no wonder you know and so uh how many of you by a show of hands uh would say that you have uh, a good memory it's okay to admit it would you say you have a good memory like you know matt damon and goodwill hunting you ever seen that like that kind of a memory like how do you like them apples right like that that kind of a thing right so uh a few about two months ago I was having lunch with a friend. Been a, he's been a friend of mine since we were kids. 
uh, super tight and have been for a very, very long time. We were talking, he doesn't live in town anymore, so we were catching up on a whole bunch of stuff. And at one point I was telling him about this sort of thing that was going on, and uh, it's just, it's hard to really explain, but basically I said, and you know who's a part of this? <clears throat> and I said this girl's name. And, and he looks at me and goes, oh, he goes, who's that? I said, you know, the girl that you dated all through high school? <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh, how many of you by a show of hands would say that you don't have a good memory, right? <laughs> like, you're more like Matt Damon in The Born Identity, right? <laughs> the first one, where he's like, doesn't, you know? Okay, so just the two Matt Damon references. That, that worked out well this morning. So, all right, but here's the reality. The truth of our, of our times, of our day and age, is that whether your memory is a steel trap or a steel sieve, right, most of us have chosen to outsource our memories. Right? Part of the reason for this is that no matter how good of a memory you might have, you probably have enough things going on in your life that you need to rely on external reminders to ensure that you don't forget important happenings, right? So we set up, and there's tons of these things we do, automatic notifications on our calendars, right, for things that want to remind you 15 minutes or half an hour before a meeting or whatever it might be, or it's 15 minutes or half an hour before your anniversary, things like that, right? So hopefully you're a little ahead of, of that, guys. And gals, but anyway. So um, we use scheduled alarms, right, for all kinds of different reasons. Hey, I'm going to set an alarm every day at X time to remind myself to do this or whatever it might be. Uh, and maybe some of you, uh, I know I do this. Uh, I like it. Our family does this. Maybe some of you still use uh, sticky notes uh, to post around the house or to-do lists or just, you know, stick different places. Hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z to those in your house or whatever. Or maybe you have the old school system of you tell a friend, hey, Remind me to fill in the blank, or that one's really efficient, right? Better make sure your friend has a, a good memory as well. But all that to say that no matter how bad your memory might happen to be, there's really no excuse uh, for forgetting anything these days, is there? I mean, there's really no excuse. You can have the worst memory ever, but you've got calendar reminders, you've got phone alarms, you've got sticky notes, you've got friends, you've got all kinds of things in place uh, to make sure that you remember things that you need to do, uh, things that are important to you, goings-on, happenings, appointments, meetings, you name it, right? So in light of that fact, let me just suggest uh, that if you do forget something, it likely wasn't that important to you in the first place. As Jordan said, we're in this series, Love and Light, getting closer, closer to the end here of it, First John. Let me read the text from this morning. And it's 1 John 4, uh, verse 7 through 16a. So the first half, if you see like an A at the end of a verse, that means it's just the first half of a verse. This is John, as we talked about writing, uh, kind of a sermon to this church. And he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Are you detecting a repetitive theme here? This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him, and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So Jordan and I were chatting before uh, the service this morning, as we often do. And since he's been gone this week, we didn't have a chance to really talk about my message or the direction that I was going to head. And so knowing the text that I was preaching from, he made sort of just an offhanded, uh, flippant joke. He said, what are you preaching on today? Love? Like joking. And I said, actually, no, I'm not. He was like, what? Like, no. (laughs) I was like, I'm not going to preach on love. I was like, well, the whole text is about love. And I'm like, no, there's something else in there. I was like, there's something else in there. And I was like, can you preach on love a few weeks ago? Everybody's got that figured out by now anyway. So let's just, let's talk about something else. So here's what I want to talk about. Literally the one text in there, it doesn't have anything to do with love. And it's on the screen, 1 John 4, verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. I've said this many times before. I'm going to put it back on the screen again just in case you've forgotten. Big truth. Important thing to remember is you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You cannot understand, fully appreciate, get the gravity of, really take in the depth of meaning and the profundity sometimes of what's going on in the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament. You have to remember that the New Testament was written entirely by Jewish people who, for their Bible, used the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament, was a Pharisee, and he said a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was like top-notch, which means all of his schooling, all of his education, everything that he did was oriented around the Old Testament. He knew that Old Testament inside and out. Some scholars say that for a Pharisee to be a Pharisee, they would have had to have memorized the entire Old Testament. Memorized it. And not just the Torah, excuse me, not just the first five books, the Pentateuch, but the entire Old Testament, the Torah, all of it. Think about memorizing like Leviticus, right? Most of you won't even read it. Like think about trying to memorize it, right? But he had that on recall. And so when you know that and you start reading some of his like master works like the book of Romans and you understand in there how many times he's talking about the Old Testament. And if you don't know what he's talking about, you're going to miss so much of it. And it's not to say that like, oh man, you can't be a Christian and you can't do this. I'm not saying that at all. Don't, don't hear that. What I am saying is just don't neglect the Old Testament. I think in oftentimes, and this is a bit of an aside, but in the, the church in 2021, it's It's like kind of like, okay, here's a few random New Testament scriptures that are anecdotal, and then we're going to give you some kind of like self-help as the main point. And that's just not how it's supposed to be. Like we're supposed to have the Old Testament and the New Testament intertwined in this beautiful way so that one illuminates the other and vice versa. And so that's what I kind of want to do today is to explain, right, the Old Testament context that will inform 
really the power of this verse in 1 John. So we're literally going to start in, in a second here. We're going to start in Genesis and go all the way through Malachi, which is literally the entirety of the, New, of the Old Testament. Excuse me. But before we do that, I want to give you just a little bit of, of background. So there used to be a building uh, that stood on a hill in Jerusalem known as Solomon's Temple. The Bible, actually, in the Old Testament, and also a little bit in the New, devotes a significant amount of space to detailing its construction and then ultimately its unfortunate destruction. If anybody's ever read uh, where this is detailed, it's like it needs to be this many cubits high and this many wide and this many deep, and it has to, I mean, it is, they go, they, they lay it all out there. And, and Paul had that memorized. <laughs> like, they lay all the building plans out there. Right? So the question is, like, why is this building so important to the biblical authors? If you think about the, the Bible as a canon of different texts and how they chose to put things together, like, why was it so important, uh, first of all, that these were included? Why was it important that they were written in the first place? Right? You have to ask yourself that question. And additionally, if, if the old, entire Old Testament points to Jesus as Jesus himself said that it did, then and all this time and energy and space is devoted to detailing the Old Testament temple to Solomon's temple, what does an ancient building have to do with us? All right, the building was a major part of God preparing his people not only to go to a temple, but to become the temple itself. And this really sums up our crucial role in God's master plan to dwell forever with his greatest creation, which is humanity. If you identify as a Jesus follower, you are, according to the scriptures, you are an ancient building. You are God's temple. Now, I understand that this can be a strange concept to try to grasp. You're like, people have called me a lot of things, but never an ancient building. It's an interesting one. You are God's temple. So let's spend some time looking at how the temple theme unfolds in the biblical narrative. And so we're going to go Genesis through Malachi. And I have a lot of these verses. So we're going to be flying through a lot of scriptures if you want to, you know, take screenshots or whatever you need to do uh, to stick with these. But the initial glimpse of this temple language occurs with the first image bearers in the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, Famous, famous, famous scriptures. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here's what's interesting about this text beyond the obvious is that in ancient times, images of the gods typically took the form of idols placed in temples. Okay, I'm going to say that again and then explain it. In the ancient times, images of the gods typically took the form of idols placed in temples. And we still see this today in various religions where they have, in certain cases, tens of thousands of gods 
right? There's an image they've created to be associated with that God. So maybe in Hinduism, there are certain gods where they take on the, the form of, uh, you've seen some probably crazy idols in these temples. If you've ever watched any TV, you've probably seen some of this stuff. Maybe they take the form of, of a snake with multiple heads, and that represents X, or maybe they have this really crazy animal form. So that represents, in some way, shape, or form, uh, the, the form that the God takes, but also it's the personality. There's an association with the personality, the disposition of that particular God. And again, in certain you know, aspects of certain religions, there's tens of thousands of these. But what we see in Genesis 1 is God explaining to the people at that time that this is the form he is taking, right? He is God, and the form that he is taking is humanity. So we see instantly, instead of taking an idol that's made by man's hands and placing it in a temple and saying, this is what this God looks like, God creates for himself his own image, and he chooses that image to be us, right? So he early on creates us in his image to dwell with him, to bear his image to the world, and he inhabits us so for that brief moment in time, however long it was, doesn't seem like it was long, but for a brief moment, there was no need for a temple structure, right? All of mankind lived in harmony with each other, with nature, and uh, with God. Of course, we know that this utopian picture doesn't last very long. The first humans chose rebellion, and as a result, they were alienated from the garden, from each other, and probably worst of all, from the presence of God. And we're left to wonder after we read that story after they're put out of the garden east of Eden and there's a, a guard sent at, the, sent at the gate so they can't return and they can't do these things. You wonder, where do we go from here if you're reading the, the biblical narrative? Will God restore his presence among them? And if so, how will he go about it? How is he going to make this? Is he going to do it again at all? Because they've sinned, and if he is, how's that going to happen? So let's fast forward. So we went Genesis. Let's fast forward to the Exodus story. The people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. A long time. 400 years. And they're entirely at this point, almost entirely at least, disconnected from their identity as God's image bearers. What was originally intended for them has pretty much been buried. It's pretty much been lost their identities have been lost 400 years in captivity and slavery in someone else's culture, having to be, take on some, somebody else's cultural identities, and on and on. But then as we know, God uses Moses. And as Moses leads the people out of Egypt, God commands the people to build what is referred to as the tabernacle. This is like a tent type structure. And this tabernacle, this tent type structure, served as a place for God to dwell with his people. So he tells them, gives again, very specific instructions. This is how this needs to be built. And once it's complete, my presence will come down and descend and it will inhabit this tabernacle. He will take some part of himself, and it's a very mystical thing that we don't fully understand, but he will inhabit that tabernacle, and that will become the place of God's presence, and it will be holy and powerful, and you don't want to mess with it. If you read some of the Old Testament stuff, real careful, right? If it, like, you don't want to mess with it, right? Exodus 25.8 is where it, kind of a succinct verse that sums this up. 
It says, this is God speaking to Moses, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So what was lost in the exile from Eden, the communion of man and God, that presence is now restored, although it looks differently, but it's almost like they're back in Eden. Here now we have this tangible thing and the presence of God is there and he's dwelling among them. And this is the way that he chooses to operate until several hundred years later when this tent, this tabernacle, is replaced by the permanent structure that King Solomon built in Jerusalem. This is the temple. This building was identified in Isaiah as a house of prayer for all nations. So let's look at Isaiah 56.7 where it details some of that. This is God speaking in Isaiah, speaking on God's behalf. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer, referring to this temple. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Nations. This is revolutionary prophetic stuff that you don't fully understand unless you can get inside this Jewish mindset where they were convinced at the time that the Messiah, their deliverer, it was just for them. And here, way before Jesus came, Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf and says, a house of prayer for all the nations. And they just never were able to get that for whatever reason. This also might be a familiar verse if you remember a famous scene in the New Testament when Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables and he says to the money changers, it is said, my house will be a house of prayer. He's not making that up on his own. He's quoting Isaiah, but you have made it a den of thieves, robbers. So through this temple, that Isaiah's talking about here that Solomon would be in charge of constructing, God not only manifested his love and care to Israel, but to anyone from any culture who had come there to worship him. Anybody who was willing to come and worship God was received. And at this time, in this era, it appeared as though God finally restored what was destroyed in the garden. But, and if you've read the Old Testament, You'll see this as a repeated theme over and over, and you're like, oh my gosh. But again, Israel loses its way, and they forgot what God had done for them. They forgot where they'd been, just like that. And tragically, just like Adam and Eve, their leaders, the leaders of Israel begin to rebel against God, and they do all kinds of horrifically wicked stuff. They perpetuate evil and injustice, and as a result... They receive a punishment from God. God allows this thing to happen. The temple is destroyed, and the people are once again exiled from their land. Jeremiah talks about this. Jeremiah 52, 12 through 13 just really gives a brief descriptor of this. He says, On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, some guy's name that I've tried to pronounce all week. It doesn't work, so we'll just say this guy. Commander of the Imperial Guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, so the military commander. He set fire 
to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every important building he burned down. So they've entered into this area where God has been gracious and has restored his presence amongst them, and as they've been able to reclaim on some level what was originally intended for them in, in Eden, but they're forgetful. They're like, those 400 years in slavery, oh, when was that? Those 400 years? Oh, yeah, you remember that? You probably don't want to do the same stupid stuff again that got you there in the first place. But they forget, and God allows this to happen. The temple of the Lord is burned to the ground along with every other important place, Jeremiah says, in Jerusalem. And then many years later, many years later, some people return to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. However, again, not kidding, again, the temple system quickly fell into corruption. I, it's it's mind-blowing, but then you can look at your own life and go, oh, yeah, yeah. It's taken me about ten times sometimes to learn a lesson as well. So this is literally the last book in the New Testament, Malachi. This is a longer text, so just bear with me here as I read it. It's just five verses, but they're a little long. Malachi 1, 6 through 10 says this, a son honors his father and a slave his master. This is, again, God speaking through the prophet Malachi. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how will we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Let me stop there for one second and explain something. If you understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, you know that God asked for the first fruits. He asked for the portion of whatever it was, whether it was their, their uh, animals, their crops, whatever it was that they presented. He wanted not the worst, not the afterthought. He wanted the best, the first fruits. And he promised, if you will trust me in this and you will bring your first fruits, then I will bless you exponentially. But for whatever reason, and again, we can relate to this. Sometimes we don't trust him. And sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to. So they tried to get around it, and they're bringing, obviously, a blind animal, someone they could never have sold. Nobody would have taken it. Uh, or a lame or diseased animal. No one's going to buy that. And they're bringing those as though it's some big sacrifice, right? So God, it, it, that's the context of this, and this is why God's upset. And then God says this, again, through Malachi, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Right, would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So we have this wax and wane, this ebb and flow throughout the Old Testament with the presence of God from the Garden of Eden and walking in the cool of the day, it says, along with Adam and Eve, to then the tabernacle, to then the temple of Solomon, to then that one being rebuilt eventually. But then we, the New Testament ends, the New Testament ends with God saying, I am not pleased with you. I'm shutting the doors. I will accept no 
offering from your hands. Again, his presence is being removed. And that's where the Old Testament story ends. That's where it ends. With more questions uh, than answers. And just a reminder that when Malachi ends, nothing happens for a very long time, hundreds of years. The Gospel of Matthew and any of those Gospels or those books aren't written for many, many hundreds of years later. So what the Jewish people have at this time in Malachi, that's where it ends. You talk about kind of like a cliffhanger or ending like a movie on a bit of a bum note. Like this is where, where it ends. So the question they had to be asking themselves, especially in this sort of intertestamental period, this dark, quiet time is, has, have we really finally like done too much? Has God, it's, it's over now. He's given us chance after chance after chance after chance, and we keep blowing it. Has humanity now made it impossible for God to dwell with us as he originally intended? And to them, it sure seemed like it. You can think about that as a significant thing. But of course, we know now, 2,000 years later, that just when they thought, and maybe we thought the story was coming to a bitter end, Jesus arrives on the scene. First John the Baptist as sort of this bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And then Jesus shows up. And in fact, when the gospel writer John describes Jesus in one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures, he does so like this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Interesting. Remember what I said? Can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, or at least you'll miss so much beauty. The word that John uses when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word he uses for dwelt is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word used to describe the tent that God commanded Moses to make. Some of your translations, and maybe you're looking at them now, some of your translations, if you have an older one, will actually say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So that's the direct translation. The word became flesh, and he literally became the new tabernacle. God's presence on earth, but in a vastly different way than ever before. Exodus 25, 8 through 9, I want to read this again. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So construct this thing, and I will be there. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So Jesus shows up and becomes the new tabernacle. Matthew Another gospel writer quotes Isaiah. And in doing so, he's claiming, Matthew's claiming very clearly, he wants everyone to know that Jesus is Emmanuel. You've probably heard that, especially around Christmas time. And Emmanuel means God with us. Isaiah 7:14, very famous passage says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him 
Emmanuel, God with us, the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new presence of God, but in a vastly different way. John and Matthew's message is incredibly consistent, incredibly clear. They want us to know that Jesus is literally God with his people. And John goes on, just to give you a few other tidbits, John goes on to record Jesus referring to his own body, Jesus' own body, as a temple. Remember this? What sign will you give us that you are who you say you are? He says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they think he's talking about the literal temple that existed at the time. But then we're told, no, he was referring to his body. He's claiming, as we talked about in our I Am series, that he was God, the presence of God was here, right? And then at Jesus' crucifixion, the curtain, uh, known as the veil of the temple, that shielded the inner room of the temple, that shielded behind the, and this curtain, by the way, if you didn't know, was like feet thick, right? And it was massive in terms of its height. And that shielded the presence of God in this inner room of the temple, this powerful, beautiful, tangible presence of God in the inner part of the temple from just outside of that. You cross that threshold, which you were not supposed to do. You cross that threshold, you would encounter something that would, would, that would be the end of you, right? And when Jesus is crucified, that curtain, that veil, as it's known, was torn from top to bottom, right? Which obviously miraculous because you don't, I mean, tear, who's going to get up there and, and do that and who's going to tear, you know? You've seen the power team, remember those guys that tear the phone books? I don't think anybody was tearing that thing just with their hands. But what was the significance of that event? Well, it was representative and not just representative, but literal, that with Jesus' death, right, the way from man to God is now wide open, there's no longer this curtain, this thick veil that's both literal and symbolic that separates us from having access to God. Now, suddenly, with the death of Jesus, we have access, and we're told in Hebrews that we can now boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because we have a high priest that went before us, Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, perfect sacrifice and he accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. Through Jesus' sacrifice and victory, he made a way for God not only to dwell with his people, and here's the key for today. Through Jesus' sacrifice and victory, he made a way for God to not only dwell with his people, but for God to dwell in his people. And that's a whole different level. And from that point forward, from the crucifixion, of Jesus and the tearing of the veil in the temple. From that point forward, the New Testament writers continue, again, because they have this Jewish Old Testament context, they continue to use temple language, but they are no longer concerned at all with a building or a structure, whether it's a tent or whether it's a beautiful ornate temple. They're not concerned with that. Incredibly, for the entirety of the rest of the New Testament, when they write about the temple, they are talking about the people of God. They are talking about you. They're talking about me. They're talking about us collectively. 
there's a seismic shift that takes place. One of the most famous scriptures about this is from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, and he says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And this is a very famous passage in which Paul is doing a whole bunch of correcting of the Corinthians, who, if you know anything about them, were super messed up. Nothing like us today at all. Uh, totally just, yeah, they struggled with all kinds of stuff that we've mastered, so no worries. But they, uh, But he's telling them, like, hey, stop doing this dumb stuff. And oh, by the way, here's why. And his appeal to them, so his argument for it is, your body is a temple. And again, these are people who would have understood this. Your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's massive implications that you've been given as a gift from God. You are not your own. Let me remind you, <laughs> you were purchased with a high price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Romans 8, 11a we're going to read this and come back to it in a couple of minutes as we close. It says this, again, Apostle Paul writing, he says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and then he goes on, and we'll talk about that more later. If the spirit of him, God, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Oh, again, temple language. The Spirit of God is inhabiting you, abides in you. We're to abide in him, true, but he is abiding in us as well. Right? If he is in you. So it's big stuff. Now, at face value, and I get this because it's my tendency to, at face value, as we read these texts, you know, honor God with your body, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, I get it. We can mistakenly interpret these only as an individualistic idea or as an individualistic concept. But what's interesting is if you actually read a couple of these verses uh, in, which I wouldn't expect you to do, but like in the Hebrew, or I'm sorry, the Greek, we, we don't have in English a grammatically correct way to differentiate between a singular you and a plural you all, right? So we're forced to translate it as you but it's actually closer to you all. And I mention that because all of the yous in the text that I just read are actually second-person plurals. So that means what we should read Paul's words as is closer to something like this. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. One of my great friends is from Fort Worth, and I know he'll listen to this and appreciate that I said y'all. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in y'all, right? 1 Peter 2 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So we get a sense in that of the plurality of the language, right? Because clearly stones is plural and you don't build a house with a singular stone. 
Even though it says you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, y'all, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Is there an individual aspect to this? Is your body individually a temple of the Holy Spirit? It absolutely is. If you are a Christian, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. Is that true? It absolutely is, but it cannot stop there. Because as we're told, all of us collectively, like living stones, are being built into a house, a structure, a new temple. It's a lot stronger, right? What good is an individual stone? It can do certain things. But when you take those and you build them into a house, it's a massive difference. Can we agree? So there are some immense applications here, both for the early church as they understood it, and of course, for us today, I want to talk about three of those really briefly. I'm not going to hammer on these because they're all entire sermons unto themselves, but I do want to just touch on them. The first one is community. There's an inbuilt communal aspect to being a part of God's family. We were not created to go at this alone. We were not created to just be me and my Jesus and my Bible, it was never, ever, ever intended like that. Right? There's a communal aspect to it. Part of being a Christian is being part of a Christian community and living life with that community and making that community the focal point of your life. Making that community the thing that your life orbits around, and that is so lost on us nowadays, so lost. So one of the things that makes me most sad as a pastor is that the intention, right, is that we are individual stones being built into this temple, and that because of that, because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and I have it, that we're supposed to come together, and the idea is that that is it. I mean, that's it. That's the whole of who we are. It's not, oh, I'll come once every so often and maybe do this or that. No, the, the, the focal point of your life is intended to be built around your Christian brothers and sisters who you're in community with, not in some abstract sense, but in the context of a specific local body. In this case, it looks like most of you chosen to attend New Point. Do you, it's thinking about it differently. It's not just a I show up thing. No, this is, this is the temple, not the building. You. The next one is presence. So in the Old Testament, the temple is where God dwells with his people throughout the biblical story. So if the people of God, us, are now the temple, that means it's through these people, us, that God reaches the world. I'm going to skip to the next one because they tie in together. So presence the temple where God dwells, now we are the temple. If he reached the world, remember, anybody could come from all around the world and offer sacrifices and prayers, and they were accepted. It's how he brought the world to him. And now that's us. It means that through these people, us, God reaches the world. The final one is mobility. People traveled from far and wide to encounter God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now the people of God are the temple and are to take God's presence to the world. So there's this reality of presence and mobility. There's this reality 
that God inhabited these places and spaces in the Old Testament, and he was able to work things a certain way, but that has shifted now. And crazy as it sounds, he's now dependent upon us. He's chosen, right, to rely upon us. He's put his spirit in us, and he's entrusted us then to steward that spirit well, and also to not just somehow keep it to ourselves, but to also use it to share the gospel, the good news, and the kingdom now with the people around us. God's, and subsequently the strategy, God's strategy and the strategy of New Point Church for evangelism is you. There's no program, there's no like whatever you want to call it, what we're dependent upon is the same thing that God's dependent upon, and we feel like he knows what he's talking about, so we're just going to go with that, which is you. It's you recognizing the presence of God lives inside of you, that you now are the one who God inhabits, and he has trusted you that you were, you're not your own, that you were bought with a price. If we're the temple, then we have to make his glory known to all the nations from now until Jesus comes back, and that's why we're supposed to be, and it doesn't mean that you have to go to Tijuana as a, as a full-time missionary like Jordan's parents, although, I don't know, maybe you do. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but you should still at least think about how can I be a missionary to the people that I work with, the people in my neighborhood, my own family. Don't wait for a program to start <laughs> before you begin telling people about Jesus because it's probably not going to happen. The program is you. Right? We're told that we are God's ambassadors. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, and it says, as if God were making his appeal through us. That's a big burden of responsibility, and it's not meant to overwhelm you, but it is meant to say, you probably should take it seriously. I asked the question earlier, what does an ancient building have to do with you? Well, if you're a Jesus follower... It literally frames your entire spiritual life and your calling. Everything. It's easy to take this for granted or ignore it entirely. If you're like most Christians, you probably rarely, if ever, even think about this. If you're a busy person, and who isn't these days, right? You may have found that it's easy to get so caught up in daily living that you don't even think about him residing in you. Even if you are seeking to serve God, it's really easy to live divorced from that reality. So let me ask a couple questions as we near the end here. Thanks for your patience. Let me walk you through the entirety of the Old Testament. A couple questions here. Number one, how often do you think about the fact that you are the temple of God? And don't hear that as like, a, how often do you, it's more so like, how often do you think about it? Just to hear it like that. Or if you're here for the first time and you've never been told that, you're like, you're a, you're a believer, you've you know, Jesus, yes, that's great, but you've never been told that. Maybe this, it's okay. Now you can start. But how often do you think about the fact that you are a temple of God? Another question, again, just something to think about. If you were to think about this more often, how might it affect your attitude, words, and actions? Very practical stuff. I know, again, it's very, it's been some deep stuff today, Old Testament temple and all this, but just two very practical things. How often do you think about the fact that the Spirit of God is living in you? 
And if you don't, very often, if you were to think about it more, how might it affect your attitude, words, and actions? How might you feel differently if you're waiting in a long line at Walmart? And you're, sorry. That was just, it was like such a, like, softball, you know? So, <laughs> believe me, I know better. That's why I don't even go there anymore. So, just chosen to remove myself from it. So, let me encourage you to make this a regular part of your prayer life. And if need be, bring it all the way back around, like, like I always like to do, to outsource your memory for this in the same way you would for anything else that you've deemed as important. Why? Because this is really important. Set a notification on your calendars. Schedule a daily alarm a couple times a day that just says something like, remember, you are temple of God, right? Use a sticky note, put them wherever you need to, or say to a friend, hey, <laughs> remind me, will you, once a day that I'm the temple, <laughs> and I'll do that for you too. But we need to be diligent about this without excuse. When you continually remind yourself that you're a temple and that God's spirit lives in you, it will transform the way you look at yourself and others as well. I mean, there's multiple sermon series, books on this. And I, there's so many amazing things about this we could say, but this has the potential to transform the way you see God's purpose for your life. We read in the Old Testament that God has very strict rules about how his temple was to be treated. And even though the, that system has passed away, and we're now under a much better one, under grace and not law, we should still probably take this idea, this concept somewhat seriously. Why? Because we're told, again, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And it was a big price. I don't know about you, but in my own life, just speaking to myself now, in my own life, I want to see Jesus get what he paid for. He paid a heavy price for my life, and he's put his spirit inside of me. And I know I could never earn it, and I'm not saying that, or any performance thing. I could never measure up, but I, I want to make it worth his while. And if it means I set reminders, notifications, sticky notes, remind myself, this is who I am, this is how I'm supposed to live, and that's what I want to do. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this unbelievable gift that you've given us, that you have put your presence, your spirit inside of us, that we are, we've been crucified with you, and we no longer live, but you live in us. The same spirit that raised you from the dead lives in us. We have not even an inkling of the full implications of that reality. But I pray that we would begin to. I pray that we would begin to recognize what it means that you inhabit us, that you have chosen us, that you dwell inside of us, and that we are meant to live that out every day, every hour. Give us the strength to do that. We know we can't do it out through human effort. Holy Spirit, be present amongst us in power. Change hearts, change minds, change lives. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray.
Amen. Guys, thanks so much this morning. Have a great rest of your week, and we will see you next Sunday. Love and light. Thank you.